What do you call two really fast llamas? I don't know. What do you call two fast llamas? Llama Borghinis. <laughs> The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. So yeah, that podcast thing we're here to do. Here we go then. Today is Saturday, February 28th, 2015, and this is episode 107 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? Doing great. How about you? I am good, albeit I did catch my girlfriend's, like, cyber Ebola or something, so I, I apologize if I sound a little sick. It's because I'm a little sick. Uh, got it. Got it. And, uh, you know, for those who have noticed, um, we did not release an episode last week. Um, my my hard drive started dying almost immediately after we recorded with uh, uh, Paul Security Weekly. I think it was just far too much awesome for, you know, for that drive. So You may very well be correct. I anyway. Right. Which, by the way, the, uh, the Paul Security Weekly was very fun, and we definitely appreciate them inviting us on the show. Absolutely. That was a, it was that good was, time. It was a good time. So check out the show if you haven't. That's right. So it's, uh, I think it's securityweekly.com. So um, getting into our own stories here. Uh, actually, before we do that, I do want to say the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. There we go. So our first story is from Bloomberg, and it's a follow-up to a story we talked about a couple of weeks ago where one of Bloomberg's, I'm sorry, one of uh, Morgan Stanley's employees had allegedly stolen 350,000 client uh, detail or client records, and then uh, someone offered them for sale on an online forum. Um, it, it's apparently starting to become more and more likely that this person didn't actually sell them he or, or offer them for sale. What what appears to be the uh, the, the leading theory, I guess, by um, by the FBI is that uh, he copied those records to his computer, his personal computer, which had been compromised. Which we had speculated on, I think, when we originally covered this that's, story. Yep, that's right. So, um, you know, I think it's it's kind of a you know, cautionary tale. Again, you can have good controls on your, your uh, business computers, but if you have employees copying data to their own personal computer to do work, you know, you don't know what's going on there, and it seems, you know, it, it'll be interesting to find out what actually happened here, but, um, you know, if, if that is in fact what happened, it's it's kind of interesting, you know, that somebody, somebody you know, fortuitously had compromised this person's computer and then recognized that that data existed there and then offered it for sale, so... 
Yeah, and this is something that we talk about pretty often of this balance between employees wanting to do work, right? Let's say, let's just assume for a moment that there was nothing nefarious involved here, that this guy just wanted to work at home and get some work done and get the promotion. And and so he probably thought he was doing the right thing. You know, he thought he was helping the company in his own way. And I think we see this all the time. We've We've covered stories like this repeatedly of – of employees just happening to have sensitive critical data at home for, you know, I need to work at home, I put it on Dropbox, I email it to myself, whatever. And the challenge becomes when security gets in the way too much of allowing people to do the job the way they want to do it, they start finding ways around security. And then that becomes an issue where you've got even less control. So I guess the point is, I think it's incumbent upon security folks to understand what the business wants to do and try as best they can. They can't always, but try to find a safe, controlled way to do it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think in this, I think this is a, this is kind of a hybrid case because, you know, thinking back to the original story, he didn't have any legitimate reason to ex, you know, to have all three hundred fifty thousand records. The, the 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 hypothesis at the time was that you know it's it's not uncommon for these people who hop from company to company to try to take a, you know to take a rolodex quote rolodex of clients with them, and you know this was his attempt at copying down the entire company's rolodex, you know, with no intention of selling it, but you know, kind of using it for his own purposes in the future. Well, that that's a different story then. Well, I, I know, but it's, you know, I guess it goes, I think it's the difference between criminal and, you know, violating policy. So, Well, then I'm also wondering, you know, did they not have any DLP to catch this sort of stuff flowing out and being copied? And it makes you wonder well, what they actually had running. Yeah, so... Um, the my recollection of the story was that he pulled it down with it allegedly with his work laptop which didn't have active usb ports and so at the time they were kind of scratching their head well how did he get it over there and i'm guessing you know any anybody with any amount of creativity can come up with something you know whether it's a local network file transfer or you know there's there's a thousand and one ways to do this so i'm sure they that person found some creative way which probably didn't have any visibility to their normal uh, dlp tools um i i think the 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 opportunity that they had that they missed was they they clearly identified this guy really quickly by looking at their records of who ran queries against their database and so obviously they have that capability you know, I, I would assume now they're probably looking at they're looking for proactively for people who are querying you know many records. So um, anyway, you know, there's there's lots of lots of ways to solve that particular problem. Uh, if you don't have a business reason for people to be accessing all those records at once, you know, maybe maybe you should either implement some kind of technology to block it, or you know at least detect that it happens and then go follow up with it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair, but it's an interesting case nonetheless. I think we'll we'll find out more, I'm sure. Indeed. So um, moving on to our next story, which is also a follow-up. This is from Gizmodo, and the title is 
It's been three months and the State Department is still hacked. So back in November, there was a story about the State Department shutting down some of their systems. And apparently they have continued to have to shut down their email and other systems periodically because they still have, uh, allegedly, they still have some uh, some attackers in their network. Uh, not really no significant details here, but the, the, they do say that there are, they are continuing to battle similar malware that that's being slightly modified. So, by the way, you know I've I've been in a case where that has happened before. And that is one of the most frustrating things you can imagine. If you don't know where it's coming from, and it just keeps popping up, it's 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 insanely frustrating. Yeah, I was thinking when this happened on Airwolf, they just flew really high, and they depressurized the cabin and then dove, so it froze all the computers and reset them back to default. You know, you should uh, maybe you should write to uh, was it Hillary Clinton? Yeah. When this happened on Battlestar Galactica... Uh, all right, they, so, uh, yeah, our next story is... <laughs> it also happened on Stargate SG-1, and they shut everything down and reloaded back from, from known good uh, loads from the, the, the mainframe. It's the cold medicine, isn't it? I, I, I don't understand why these people don't learn. I don't but, know. In all, but in all seriousness, this is an interesting sort of challenge that... Let's take it a step beyond and what I was thinking about while I was reading this story is, how do you know when you truly have remediated a system? Exactly. That's one of the that's one of the themes I think that permeates some of our stories here is that that's exactly the that's exactly the problem. How you know, how do you how do you have any confidence in your know, post breach that you have actually kicked them out? Because that's what everybody wants to know. You know, obviously what 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 happened, who was it, and are they gone? Yeah, we were talking about this. Like, what if your AD, main AD controller got completely owned? What would you do? You know, and, and that's, that's just a bad, bad nightmare world right there. And so here, I'm also wondering, the way they write this, they say that the, the whatever malware is being slightly modified. Okay, so that tells me that they're using some sort of AV-type tool to fight it, and that whatever the exploit the original sort of mechanism for exploitation must not be being closed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which, again, I, I'm to be very clear, I am making a couple of big assumptions based on the way they've written this, and I could be way off base. But this is a tough one. And, and I actually think this may be more common than we think it is when we're dealing with malware and, and really advanced malware or, or you know advanced bad guys, uh, once they get a foothold, they're probably pretty good at, at maintaining that foothold. And it's not as simple as just running malware bytes on a couple of boxes and calling it good. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the one thing I would love to know is how are they detecting that they're still in there? And the question is, are, is this particular bad actor just being noisy about it? Or are they really good at detection that they're still in there? Yeah, that's. Those are all questions that that, that they don't really. Uh, Why don't give you answers. know, Jerry? You're supposed to know. I'm, I'm going to guess. You're the that's... host. I'm the commentary. Oh You're supposed gosh. to know. I'm, I'm going to guess that's 
confidential or classified or you know we'll have right. to wait a couple of years for the next Edward Snowden right. and all that Somebody stuff. Put out a book with unnamed sources. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know, I, I I have seen this before. I think a lot of us who've been in this business have seen these kinds of things before. So it is not uncommon, um, especially if you're being targeted to see kind of wave after wave, you will remediate a, you know, uh, you'll, you'll remediate the malware and you no sooner do you finish or you, maybe you're not even finished yet and another another wave has come in and, you know, you, you don't, you know, your, your antivirus isn't detecting it. You don't know how it's getting in. You don't know how it's spreading. And sometimes, and I've been in, I've been involved in cases where we never did figure out how it propagated and you know that's it's it's a diff, it can be a very difficult and uh, extraordinarily frustrating situation. So I I feel for him, but yep. you know if you're the State Department, you should probably have better contingency plans. I'm thinking, <laughs> or something. I don't know. I, I without knowing more about the details, it's tough to give any sort of decent advice. But I do think that the takeaway here is that it's not a simple remediation plan and that the, the bad guys can be very persistent if you really don't root them out every place they're hiding. Yeah. Yep. That's for sure. So um, speaking of not knowing if bad guys are in your system or not, our next story is from the register. And so also speaking of Edwards Snowden, one of the leaked documents from about two weeks ago pointed out that Apparently, the NSA and the GH, GCHQ had obtained the encryption keys for uh, for quite a lot of the SIM cards that Gemalto sells as part of their business operations. And these are the cards that control your GSM phones, right? So uh, uh, the, the the implication is that if you have those encryption keys and you have a you know, you have the ability to monitor phone calls or you have recorded phone calls, you can use those keys to decrypt the the call. And there's somewhat valid reasons why this, you know, why symmetric key encryption is used versus public key encryption. But, you know, I, I'm not here to talk about that. The point of the story is that uh, after this news was released, obviously everybody kind of looked at Jamalto's way and said, what the heck is going on here? And Jamalto apparently spent all of six days in, in introspection and then came forward and said, yeah, the, the, the NSA and GCHQ were probably in our network a couple of years ago, but they definitely didn't get anything. Uh, so... And of course, you know, most people in the information security community are are kind of calling BS on that. It, you know, if, if for no other reason that you really couldn't make such a firm determination in in such a short time. Um, so, but do you think it's probably um, one? I agree that that even if that's the case. How could they know in a short period of time? You know, the NSA could tell them, oh, by the way, we didn't get anything. Yeah, I believe you, sure. <laughs> um, two, you know, this feels like a PR move to me. Absolutely. You know, hey, don't don't worry about it. 
We're fine. You can trust our phones. You know, the NSA can't watch you. I would wager this is probably going on more often than we know it is. And this is, you know, there's, we know for a fact there are whole divisions built to go after encryption keys because they can't easily break the encryption unless, so they go after the keys and they go after the, the you know, in essence, being able to spoof known good endpoints of whatever encryption we're talking about. Because it's so, you know, programmatically difficult from a from a CPU standpoint to break the level of encryption a lot of these guys are using. But it's usually pretty easy to go get the keys. Right. And this is sometimes an, uh, an unknown problem that is often ignored when we start talking about encryption. Usually, even strong encryption is great, but it's usually implemented badly or the keys aren't protected well. And that's and, – and the NSA and other people know that. They know where the weak points are. Right. And, and I think sadly – uh, this stuff used to sound like science fiction, but we're now in an era where I think this stuff's probably going on all the time. And I think most companies who probably in any way are involved in telecommunications or encryption probably are a target for these sorts of intrusions. Yeah. The other thing that, that occurred to me is that you know that there's a there's an implicit assumption that they that the NSA and GCHQ kind of you know quote walked in through the front door in their network, and you know that. I would think that you know, maybe they did try that, and if they if they weren't successful, you know I'm sure they have lots of other avenues at their disposal, including employees. Um, you know, I, I I just think it's naive to believe that you know because you you saw them being repelled at your firewall that you know that that was kind of the end of it and that they didn't uh you know, they didn't pay off one of your employees or right. or uh, or hire somebody into your company who worked for them or whatever you know we we've said this a number of times that if if your opponent is the NSA or GCHQ or whoever uh that's probably beyond the scope of this show to help you uh, yeah i would agree um, not to be defeatist about it, but there's so many, so many resources they can bring to the table. They're gonna get what they want to get, most likely. Um, or, or I put it this way: it's, it's. I, I feel that we've got bigger fish to fry that are more realistic to defend against. Um, trying to defend against true intelligence services uh, is a very, very difficult losing battle. Uh, and there's better resources spent elsewhere. But I've said that before on this show, and a lot of times I catch flack for that because people feel it's defeatist. But um, I don't know. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather spend my time trying to defend against you know criminal organizations and competitors and syndicates and that sort of thing than than really really worrying about um, uh, nation state level, true nation state level. Intelligence organizations, but no, I, I think you're right. Although I will say, this the next story we have gives me a little bit of pause. And so we'll, we'll... before we go on to that, uh, yeah. since you brought up Snowden, completely off topic. But since I was basically, you know, suffering my cyber bowl, I was stuck on the couch for the past couple of days, and uh, I happened to watch this documentary about Snowden called Citizen Four. Um which was shot by one of the uh, initial 
media contacts that Snowden reached out to, uh, and uh, along with uh, Greenwald. So I forget her name, but she shot this. So the documentary is basically the the eight days covering when the journalists uh, first met Snowden in Hong Kong, and primarily it's their discussions with Snowden in that Hong Kong uh, hotel room. And as things started to get published and the reactions and such. So uh, I will say that clearly the filmmakers are highly sympathetic to Snowden and his cause. Uh, I, you know, I'm not uh, – I, I don't get into politics on this show, um, but I do want to not mislead anybody. It's very much a pro-Snowden uh, documentary. However, regardless of your opinion, it was a fascinating documentary to watch. And I think really brings a lot to the table in truly understanding uh, the nuances around some of the Snowden stuff. So if you haven't seen it, I, I, I found out because I won an Oscar the other day and I was like, oh, and it happened to be on HBO. So I just said, well, let's watch it. And I was pretty quickly engrossed in it. Um, of course, it is biased and of course it is slighted and, um, you know, all those sorts of things. But uh, I'd say it's worth giving a watch if you have the opportunity. Cool. I haven't seen it, so uh, I certainly yeah, I, it. I didn't really know about it, so uh, I don't know that it got much press. Um, but at least for folks in our line of work, it was it's interesting, sort of, you know, being a fly on the wall for those early conversations. Uh, I'm sure. Kong. I'm sure. So, anywho, that's all, all. right. Cool. So our next story is uh, it's actually Mandiant's M Trends report for 2015. Uh, so this is uh, this is a report they put out every year for the last couple of years at least, uh, and I thought there were were some interesting things to talk about, uh, and, and actually kind of bleeds in from this past story. And I'll so I'll, from that perspective, I'll start from the the back and work forward. Their uh, their trend number four that they observed is titled Blurred Lines, Criminal and APT Actors Take a Page from Each Other's Playbook. And this is something I've been concerned about for quite some time. And and that's, you know, we we talk a lot about, you know, the the, the difficulty of defending against, you know, the NSA or or the the mil- military organizations, people who have, you know, very very deep uh capabilities are difficult to defend against. But here's the problem I see, and that is we've got, you know, for better or for worse, right or wrong, we have a lot of these APT operations come to light from many different venues, whether it's, you know, reports like this or antivirus vendor reports or, you know, people finding the malware that is is used, that... What, whatever the case may be, those techniques and tactics are becoming public knowledge. And they're effective, and they're hard to defend against. And, you know, we, as an, as an industry, have a hard time defending against, you know, the relatively simple things. And to me, it seems like we're, we're, we're really headed in a difficult direction with this because there's a lot of innovation I, I, and this is just my you know one one crazy person's take there's innovation taking place on the offensive side at a rate that far exceeds what's going on on the defensive side and that concerns me a lot 
So uh, that that was, I think, probably the most interesting thing in this report to me. But there is another, uh, there's another one, which is their trend number two, which is retail is in the crosshairs. And they go through a really nice synopsis of kind of the end-to-end exploitation of a retailer. And, you know, from from the, uh, you know, from the, the initial intrusion to the lateral movement to eventually pushing down the uh, RAM scraping malware to all of the pause terminals and then eventually to uh, exfiltrating the data. And, you know, they they give a couple of of takeaways there. Uh, it, I think it's it's worth everybody reading this. I, I'm not going to go through it all, but uh, well, did you have something to say about it? Yeah, no, I I, I really uh, found that section two about the case study on the retail breach fascinating, and it really is uh, approachable. It doesn't get too far down the weeds, so but it shows a really good example of what the techniques, capabilities, and tactics are these days, and the recommendations. Um, we're spot on in terms of securing the road access, securing access to the PCI environment. And, you know, one thing they called out that we've talked about a lot about is um, the AD trust relationships in the Active Directory uh, Windows domains and how isolated is your PCI environment from your main environment. In other words, this particular attack started at a desktop level. And uh, basically breaching the desktop, getting Windows AD credentials, and then moving into AD, getting more AD credentials, and then moving into the PCI environment. And if they had had uh, the trust relationship set up differently or no trust relationship set up, they couldn't have easily transitioned from the user environment, which is much more likely to get attacked, into the PCI environment as easily as they did. And so, you know, we have this concept of segregating our PCI environment, but there's all sorts of trust relationships that we don't think about when we segregate. And this, I thought, was a good one um, that that they that they called out. Uh, I agreed with all the recommendations. Uh, deploying application whitelisting critical assets, I think I absolutely agree with. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's highly effective. Um, managing privilege accounts, I think, is also highly effective. And also, managing privilege accounts is a great indicator of bad activity internally if you're watching and alerting on on uh, privileged account activity. So, yeah, there's all sorts of good stuff in here. And, and I think just reading through, uh, if, if you read nothing else, because these reports can be daunting, but read through Section 2, in my mind, I think was the was the, the most interesting part from an active defender standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, I, 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 I've talked with Bob a lot about about this. Um, and, you know, Bob has seen quite a number of, uh, of really significant incidents that uh, where a key aspect of the, the depth of the penetration was related to the way Active Directory was set up. And, you know, they, there was, quote, network isolation between two different environments uh, however, because the Active Directory was in place, it provided a convenient both authentication level uh, mechanism and a network tunnel to get from the the initial point of intrusion uh, to where they wanted to go. And you know he's seen that in uh, many, many, many different cases in different environments. So 
this, um, you know, when I was talking with Bob about this, this really resonated with him because it's a, it's a very common problem that I, I don't think as IT people, we do a good job of understanding the, the, the risk of architecting things like this. Yeah, I concur. The one recommendations that they don't have in here that I would add is they don't really talk about ways that they could have alerted on this sort of lateral activity and spotting this lateral activity, which I think is something that we suck at, And but there's a lot of opportunity to catch. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, just a, a side note, I was um, – I, I had a had a free hour on – I think it was Thursday. Yeah, it was Friday actually, yesterday. Uh, John Strand and the Sands Group, and I think it was John Strand and Ed Scotus did a, uh, a webinar on pen testing, and it was using, uh, it was, I think it was primarily using the NetSH tool that's built into Windows to laterally move through a network, and it was fascinating the the the, the way that you are able to use kind of native tools to to effectively route your network traffic through the environment in ways that you don't think should be possible. So, you know, this is, this is goes back to something that I've been thinking about a lot about that. It's very difficult for us to define, to uh, design networks. Well, if we don't have an understanding of how attackers can leverage stuff, you know, leverage this stuff against us. So. Yeah, I would agree, and and also have the imagination to foresee what new techniques an attacker may right may use. You know, one thing like I think about <clears throat> from time to time is, and this isn't always the case, but there was a time where we built backup networks as a separate VLAN off a separate interface to all of our servers, and as a result, if you could get into one server you could blow past all your segmentation by just coming out the other side on the backup network. Right, and there's probably no no IPS, no no monitoring, right. nothing. Right. Um, as far as I know, we've never really seen that used much or talked about much, but that's the kind of thing where I think when you're architecting, you've got to think about. Right. And go, well, wow, if I was an attacker, this is this is prime, and how can I slow them down? And at the end of the day, we do still have to operate. So that may be a risk we have to take, but then what can I do to instrument that area to mitigate or at least alert when something weird is happening? No, I think you're right. Uh, so they did have a, there was another one that I'll, I'll just talk about. And uh, it's their trend number one, which is struggling with disclosure. And this goes back to something you said at the towards the beginning of the show, and that is, how do you know when they're gone, right? And they they uh, I think it's on page number six. They give you a couple of key bullet points on um, effective what they call conducting an effective investigation. And I I would say it's more on the point of being prepared to talk about your investigation. And again, back to back to the issue that when when people ask you, especially people in the media or investors or maybe even your management, you know, they they want to know a couple of key things. You know, who did it, which you know may or may not be very useful. What did they get, and are they gone? And that are they gone question is really hard. It's a, it's a very difficult 
question to answer, but it's probably one of the most, at least immediately, one of the most important to be able to answer. And so, you know, how, how do you get to a point in the, in the course of responding to an incident that you feel comfortable that that they're gone? And I don't have great advice. Um, it just, it's something to think about because it's a, it is a really difficult question to answer. So, yeah, it's a good point. It's, how do you know? And, and and can you trust a box again? You know, this is the debate, you know, folks have all the time when even at a desktop level, a box has been breached in some way. And do I clean it or do I rebuild it? And, you know, that's a tougher equation when I start getting to a server level. Yeah. Yeah. It, but kind of going back to the Active Directory thing, you know, Active Directory is such... You know, we talked a little bit about this on Paul on Paul's show, um, and you know, I, I think it was uh, um, I forget his name right now mentioned. You know, you you can he, he, his belief was you can do a better job of of defending Active Directory, but you know, I, I I'm not really familiar with that anybody is actually doing a good job. It just I, I just see so much carnage associated with it, um, but from a from a incident response standpoint it's it's just such a disaster because if something happens and someone does get in your active directory environment there's really no there's there's really no alternative for you you know you you uh you have very very limited options um obviously restoring from backups is a possibility but it is you know, it, it's it's painful, well, and and also if you have you know many domain controllers, you know, you, the the badness propagates everywhere. So, one thing I will say is this is where virtualization technology may be a help. When oh, you can take ab- snapshots, absolutely. And restore, you know, but you got to know when to restore to. You know, you could have backups where the where the bad guys already have their backdoors planted. You got to be able to know. When you truly got compromised, right, <laughs> and and be able to go back beyond that. Yeah, um, we we talked a little about about this a while ago, and I've I've done some research on what it would take, and you know the uh, Microsoft's best advice is is restoring from a backup, but you know again, you effectively have to shut down all of your domain controllers, and then you know kind of restore one, and then start restoring the others you can't you know it's you can't you can't operate partial here you know it's you got you got to take the whole the whole shot down and your point about virtualization is right on i you know i I, i'm not exactly sure what the 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 common uh state of the art for deploying it is now but based on everything i've read you're crazy if you're not putting these things in in a virtualized environment because you you can't actually restore, as I understand it, a domain controller to a different piece of hardware or any different version of the operating system. So it's quite picky these days. Yeah. And, you know, I got to think that when you start messing around with restoring AD controllers at different points in time, the 
the synchronization issue is going to be a problem. <laughs> you know, you're going to have a cranky domain for a while. It's just a bad scene all around. Yeah, well, I I think what you I think what you end up doing is restoring restoring a, a primary domain controller, restoring a domain controller, making making it primary, and then effect, I think effectively what you're doing is creating new domain controllers and replicating it across. I don't think you're yeah. I don't think you're restoring the the backups. Yeah, my AD foo is a little weak, exactly, but that that sounds right, and you know, but that's painful. I mean, it's a long bad weekend for somebody. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. But you know, it, if if you are act, if you are an Active Directory shop, and it is really important, if if you know, uptime is really important to you, this is something to think about. Think think this through. You, this is not just. You know, throwing a backup tape in the in the drive and and restoring necessarily. There's a lot more to it. All right. So um, our last story for tonight comes from CSO Online, and it is titled "How Better Log Monitoring Can Prevent Data Breaches." We've talked a lot about this in the past, but this one resonated with me quite a lot because of something I. Uh, I, I've been championing, championing at at uh, my employer. So, you know, again, per, you know, kind of story goes: per, pervasive breaches. There's quite often data there to help us out. Our problem is that you know we just have to you know turn on the logging, and then we got to get the the logs shipped to some place where they can be used, and then we have to have a tool to ingest and monitor the logs and then you know we have to we we have to do something with the logs they're not they're not very helpful if you know if if uh if it's not being if the alerting is hasn't been tuned and people are ignoring the output things that we've talked about in the past and then uh, and then the the next level of maturity i would say is getting to the point where you can I, I like to call it a burglar alarm, right? That's what I, the way I describe it, is, you know, from a, from the perspective of an intrusion, and this isn't exactly covered in the article, but they're they they get into correlation, log correlation, and things like that. But from my perspective, if you have all these logs coming in from different sources and whatnot, you have an opportunity to look at kind of the ecosystem of what's happening around your systems and say, you know, it it shouldn't happen that I see a whole bunch of failed login attempts and then all of a sudden I see that system running a ping sweep. You know, that's probably not a good thing. And I, I think it's reasonable to come up with uh, a relatively defined set of what I'll call business rules like that, that would indicate something is going the hell wrong and you need to go investigate. So anyway, that's, that was why I wanted to talk about this one. Yeah, no, it's, it's, this goes back to what we were just talking about, which is there's all sorts of activity that in retrospects, you know, would have pointed out that you've got intrusions and lateral movement, all that kind of jazz. And I don't think we do a good job with this of, of looking at logs. The other thing I would say is that logs come in handy. If you have, Known you've got something going on, you can start to trace back and find out where and how it it started and what else might have gone on. But oh, absolutely! From that from the perspective of incident response, 
being able to doing exactly what you just said, being able to kind of drill in and see, okay, what all systems did this IP address communicate with? Right. And, you know, that's a very powerful thing that might, might help you contain, you know, the focus of your, your response. So, you know, that's, a, that's, that is a really good point and something that, that I've made, you know, copious use of in the past. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, a, that's also a very important point. So any other ideas? Yeah. No, you know, the other thing is, is I, the other thing I like about log, good log correlation is then you can start doing a few things with perhaps, um, some honey records or some honey accounts that once you've got good log correlation and you've got good log alerting, you can set up some things that should never be touched and then alert when they are. That's a good point. That's a good point. You set up your file server and, uh, you know, drop a credit card.xls file and turn on, turn on access auditing and you create a rule if that thing gets touched. You know, there's something going on. You don't know what it right. is, but there's something going on. The other thing that, that I've been looking at kind of going back to my my um you know my burglar alarm thing and this is we've talked about it in the past and you know I'm, we're all we're often very critical of antivirus um but you know bob has been involved in a number of incident investigations where uh you know ultimately a system was compromised and upon inspection you can clearly see that the attacker had been uploading you know or installing malware or different tools and they would get caught and cleaned and then you know, they'd try something else to get caught and clean and they would try something else to get caught and clean and eventually they would find one that worked and that got through and but nobody was watching you know and and if you got a server right if you have now i understand a file server may be an interesting edge case, but if you have a server, let's say an act, you know, a domain controller or a web server or something like that, that you really should never see an antivirus alert. If you see one, it's probably worth investigation <laughs> and 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 quickly. And you know, if if there is some kind of false positive, I. I got to believe there's something that there's something going on that you're going to want to take care of anyway. But um you know that's that's I think an opportunity to make better use out of your antivirus. So Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So, anyway, I think that is our show for uh for the week and uh you know, hopefully my hard drive stays working again. For the week, <laughs> indeed, and uh, hopefully we'll... I'll be less uh, plagueish for next week's show. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, you know, as usual, if you have any ideas, thoughts, opinions, questions, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. Uh, I will tell you, I'm a little backed up on responding to some. I apparently we've gotten a few new listeners lately, so uh, yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm working through the backlog. Uh, if you like the show, give us uh, give us some love on iTunes. You know, that helps us get from, like, number 262, maybe the number 250 or something. That'd be cool. Uh, and uh, you can find the show on the Internet at www.defensivesecurity.org, where we have links to all the stories we've talked about. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again next week. Thank you. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. 
Give me one second. I'm going to blow my nose. Sorry. Oh, Christ. That's how the show's going to be. Bye me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.